Hello, podcast friends and family, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome for the second time Angela Jackson. Angie is a specialist paediatric musculoskeletal physiotherapist with over 30 years of experience working with children and young adults. She is an absolute fountain of information when it comes to dealing with kids' injuries. Today we're talking about spondees or spondylolysis, which is essentially a bone bruise or a stress fracture in children's spines and one of the most common back pain injuries we'll see in child athletes. Whilst they are common, they are very important to pick up, so we are doing our really best to raise awareness of them on today's show. Angie explains today what they are and how they come about, and she explains how a stress fracture is very different to a full fracture, and having a spondy or stress fracture in your back isn't quite as scary as it can first sound. I love interviewing Angie. As you'll see from this episode, she has a wonderful way of explaining any injury in a non-scary and non-threatening way, so it's an absolute pleasure to chat to her today, and I really hope you'll learn an awful lot from this episode. So if you are someone in pain and you're looking for someone to help you, remember you can head on over to our website, thebackpainpodcast.com, where you can simply pop in your postcode and you can find someone tried and tested and trusted by us to help you look after your pain and injury. But that's it from me. I'll leave you in the very capable hands of Angie Jackson. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Back Pain and Injury Podcast. Delighted to be joined again by Angela Jackson, talking today all things spondies. So I'm going to jump right into it. Angela, what is a spondy? So it's a, it's a word I can't spell. Um, so I think it's good that it's abbreviated to spondy. It's, it's real name, spondylolysis, and it's hard enough to say, never mind spell. So um, what it is, is that you uh, have a whole sort of of injuries that you can get to the bone if you do too much too soon. Basically, the bone's really clever. If you do a little bit too much to it, it's very clever in terms of making itself a little bit stronger. Um, But sometimes we just exceed that capacity of the bone. And what it starts with is almost like a a bone bruise. Um, If we then ignore those symptoms, we can get a tiny little hairline crack. And those occur in the Little bones in the lower back. We have five um, what we call vertebrae, uh, backbones, and mostly these occur in numbers three, four, or five down towards where your hip bones join your spine. So what can happen is that this, what we call a spondylolysis, is when it's actually got this little fracture in it technically, but that fracture kind of means um, to a lot of people that it's a broken bone. This is very much, if you imagine that It's just a a hairline crack in the outer shell of the bone. Very rarely do these ever go through to being anything more serious. So think of it as like a bone bruise. That If we ignore it, it becomes a hairline crack and its posh name is spondylolysis. And mostly now because there's a whole range of these, we call them bone stress injuries to the lower back vertebrae. So just to clarify that, when you said when you said the outer layer of the bone, I think you used an analogy last time with a tree um, and the the injury to the bone. Can you do that again? Because I think that was a really useful analogy that people can understand the difference between a true fracture and a you know stress injury or a, a bone bruise. Of course. So um, when we sort of think about a fracture, 
most people, particularly children, if we start using that word or parents of children, will have thought about, say, when we fall over and we maybe break a bone. And the posh name for a broken bone is fracture. So in that instance, mostly what happens is people can visualize if it's the forearm, the bone actually sort of snaps and um, takes some time to knit back together. Um, I rather liken a stress fracture or a bone stress injury as a little bit like um, a tree. If you imagine that every year that we get older and wiser, that tree basically gets another ring around the outer perimeter. And so what can happen is when that uh, new layer in this instance of bone is laid down because we've done a bit more to it and the bone's gone, wow, I need to get stronger. That outer layer that's been laid down is new. So for a period of several weeks, that new outer bone around the outside of the bone is basically um, a little bit more immature. It's much more likely to bruise or and in some instances get a little hairline crack in it. So what doesn't happen um, is that you don't get a crack right through. It's just the outer layers where this new immature, immature tissue is. So then can they progress to a full fracture? So when we have this, I know we'll talk about symptoms in a moment, but that, that kind of level one bone bruise type stress injury, if carrying on and left alone, can it potentially get worse? It really can. And that's the problem is that what we need to do as clinicians is raise awareness that this is something that we can really prevent from getting worse. But if people aren't aware that they should stop uh, and give the bone time to catch up um, at the first signs of symptoms, then yes, we can go from that bone bruise, as you rightly say, they're generally, you know, what we call type one or type two uh, bone stress injuries. And then they can move towards being this sort of slight hairline crack. And then um, towards being an actual what we call stress fracture. Um, and still, these aren't necessarily um, serious. They are easy to, to get them down to healing as long as we then get that rest period. Now, in a very, very few instances, that um, injury, if left, um, can spread to the opposite side. So usually what we see is in somebody who's maybe like a, a right arm tennis player um, or right arm cricketer. So they're very one-sided. And what tends to happen is that the injury or the symptoms start on the other side. So a right arm cricketer, tennis player will get left-sided low back pain. And that bone stress will occur on that left side. If that is left or in some sports like gymnastics or rugby, where maybe the pressure is more even, they can then find that that then goes to the other side. And we end up with a bone stress injury, not just on the left side, but also the right. At this point, there's a lot of stress going through that bone. So it's much, much harder to get it to heal. And so consequently, what can sometimes happen is if you absolutely ignore these, then they can develop what we call a, a spondylolisthesis, which is even more of a mouthful. And in very rare instances, so the numbers of these I've seen over a 30-odd year career is negligible. So I don't want to scare Munger to, to think that every time these kids get um, a bone stress injury, they're going to get what we call a spondylolisthesis. But what happens is that the vertebrae that's affected can slip forwards a little bit on the one below. And we get sort of like a little tiny step appearance on a, an x-ray. And these can go either, we call them grade ones, which is only 25% slip, 
or a bit more, and we might get to a grade two and three and four. Now, those tend to need surgery more than the ones that are just a crack or a very small fracture. So those are sort of probably quantified almost as a different injury. Um, so the ones that we tend to find that uh, are more common are these bone stress injuries, some of which will progress to a very small hairline stress fracture. Okay, that so that clears up the difference between spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis, which is the, you know, would it be fair to say that the crack or the stress in the bone is the bits which is holding, almost holding those two joints together? So if it then progresses to that full fracture, it leads to that slight slippage. And you know, that's over a long period of time, right? It's not something which you sneeze and that kind of, you know, falls out of place like that. No, need a massive amount of force. So um, very, very occasionally in some big sort of humble fall in a, a an arched backwards type event, this could happen uh, as an acute injury, but very, very rare. Um, but mostly it's down to just, we see it a lot in the sort of gymnast dance population who are already uber bendy and who are already trying to force their backs into extremes of, of arching, what we call hyperextension. So these do exist. Um, but the thing to say is that we can see these on a scan um, and actually the, the relative amount of symptoms is very, very small. I'm sure you've had oodles of guests on and a message you loud and, and clear reinforce is that just because you see something like a spondylolisthesis on a scan doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to end up with any long-term problems. Loads of people can stabilize these. Um, it's just we shouldn't ignore them because they can progress. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's one of those where I want to take the scariness out of um, having low back pain in a young athlete is an inconvenience that needs sorting out. And it does require a relatively long period of rest and rehab and the right input. But the majority of these go back to sport without any problems whatsoever. Good. That should be reassuring for anyone that's concerned or worried or, or might have one of these. So how will they normally present? You know, assume we're talking about children and, and, you know, young adults here. What will it normally look like when they have this in the early stages? So I think I'm going to split that into two questions in a way, because you said young adults um, and children. So firstly, what happens is that this little tiny part of the bone, uh, which is at the back of the vertebrae, the back of the backbone, um, when kids are growing, um, all bones go through a period of getting longer. But at that point, they're probably a little bit less robust, that are a little bit uh, elongating, naturally maybe getting a bit thinner until eventually they catch up with what they're doing and that bone toughens up. So each bone in the human body um, matures at a different rate. So I think in our early, earlier podcast, we talked about that that growth occurs from the foot upwards. So each of these bones start to mature. Now, uh, the pars bone, which is where most of these bone stress injuries occur, actually doesn't fuse until the early 20s. So what we need to think about is that in a kid who's sporty, they're doing lots of arching, like kicking or throwing or bowling, uh, serving at tennis. So they're going to keep on bending their back backwards. And they've got low back pain. The most probable diagnosis is this bone stress injury of different levels. So we kind of need to think about these as being really common until that point of fusion. And because kids mature at different rates, I tend to have an upper threshold of about 25. So we're looking for a kid with low back pain that's worse on activity, 
Um, they very rarely get sort of pain and, unless they're particularly severe, but very unusual to get something like that badly on a, a, a chair in, on the science stools at school and they get back pain from being slumped. That's not the kind of back pain we're talking about. This is a back pain that usually is one-sided to begin with, but can then become two. And they'll usually only get pain on activity. They may get um, sore for a period afterwards, but mostly in those early stages, we're talking about intermittent low back pain, worse on activity and settles with rest. It very rarely refers down the leg or into other areas. But if you've got a lot of inflammation in that area, because maybe this is quite a, a marked bone stress, then what you will get is perhaps radiation into the buttock. They can sometimes present as though they've got a tight hamstring. And all that tells us is there's probably a little bit more going on than, you know, the body's coping with. And we need to get these guys to power down for a little bit longer. So intermittent low back pain, um, worse on activity, settles with rest. Over time, that might migrate to the opposite side and they can get pain on both sides. Um, and over time, if completely ignored, it could start to get sort of a little bit more radiating either upwards where the, backs go into, the back muscles go into spasm or downwards into the legs. But they'll very, very rarely get pins and needles or numbness or tingling like we traditionally think of as a trapped nerve in, um, in an adult. And how bad will the pain be? I mean, are these usually in severe, severe pain or could it be quite a mild you know, discomfort in the early stages? Yeah, it's a great question, actually, because we see that full spectrum. Um, and I'm not sure I really understand the way some kids can ignore pain, play with pain. Is it down to their determination to do well? Are some more hypersensitive in some instances? I'm not sure that uh, I've worked that one out yet, even after seeing so many kids. But we can have that full, uh, it just feels stiff, Angie. It just feels sore, uh, but it's just not going away. And perhaps it's getting more frequent now. Um, so every time I do the activity, it comes back. And it's maybe affecting how well I can do it. Um, down to, um, I was literally, I ran into bowl. Um, flung my body through my action. They're usually bowling as hard as they can at this point or serving as hard as they can or kicking as, as hard as they can. That upper edge of effort. And what they'll say to you is, I just knew something had happened in my back. It can end up in a heap on the floor. They, you know, they know they can't carry on. So we need a whole lot. And I'm not sure that the degree of pain is necessarily relative to whether they've got a grade one, a grade two or a grade three. So we see all sorts in kids and it literally is that full spectrum from, yeah, I've been able to carry on. It's been niggling for months through to the day I did it. I haven't been able to do anything since. And I find kids find it very hard to quantify pain often, you know, yeah. to how, how much does something hurt? You know, you and I have a bit of a relative metric to compare things to. We understand a, a, a one out of 10, a two out of 10 generally, not everyone does, but generally, whereas children just say, I don't know. It, it hurts you know, and it's very hard to quantify that. So I guess this is also for the parents. I don't know about you, but the parents you know, asking them, how much do they complain about it? Have they started mentioning it more and more and more and more? Um, are they coming home saying, I don't want to do their activity because it's sore, you know, using those type of metrics to help garner whether something is actually, you know, how much of the impact it's having on their life. 
So for those of you who've heard the um, previous podcast we did, you will perhaps remember that I was very comfortable with children with what we call severs or Osgoods, those growing type symptoms that they get in heels and knees. Um, I'm happy if they play with a two or three out of 10 pain. In low back pain of this type, I have a complete threshold for they're not allowed to play with any symptoms whatsoever. Um, and therefore, it's quite an easy decision for parents. So if we've got a young athlete, so these don't these injuries don't occur in the non-athlete population. So there's your first sort of nice definition is if you've got a child who has got um, crumbly low back pain, it's generally worse on sitting, bad positions, you know, generally quite niggly, but definitely not related to activity. That's not this injury. So what we're talking about is a little sporty kid who's been doing generally more than what they're used to of throwing, kicking, sprinting, overhead activities. They've developed that low back pain. And then whatever level it's at, it needs checking. And that's the important part is that we need to make sure that they get the right advice. And this is one of those injuries that I don't think parents can be too cautious about because it's not that it's serious. It's the fact that they can rapidly progress. So we could be talking about get some advice, find out what you're doing and literally just be off sport for two to six weeks. If these progress down the scale to where there is a hairline crack, then what we're talking about then is at least 12 weeks off sport and maybe more. So the, the message I want to get over is any low back pain in a sporty kid that's related to arching type activities, and that could be of the, the legs or it could be of the arms, requires a period of just bone catch up. The bone needs to toughen itself up and that period of time needs to be pain free. The interesting part is when we look at saying to a child, as you rightly say, they haven't got that catalogue you and I have got where we go, yeah, last time it was a bit of an ache, this time it's a sharp pain. They don't have that. Mostly uh, this might be the first time they've ever experienced a sort of debilitating um, set of symptoms. So we do have little charts that we can use with kids where we can show them little emojis. They're called Wong Bakers, but we tend to restrict those to the kids under the age of about 10. By 10, as long as you explain it to them, they can generally understand what a pain score is out of 10. But it's interesting. You look at the kid and they come in and they say, yeah, I can still play, but it's an eight out of 10. And you kind of look at them and then bouncing around your treatment room and you're kind of wondering why it doesn't seem to you know, compute with what you might regard as an eight out of 10. And quite often the parents are going, it's not an eight. And you reinforce, actually, the kid might be telling me something else. And you ask the child, what does this mean to you at the moment? And they say, you know, well, I can't bowl as fast. I'm worried I'm going to get dropped from the tennis squad or the cricket squad or whatever it is, because I know I can't perform to my best. I know that I'm having to hold back. So quite often they will report frustration. If they're not able to play, that number's usually really high because they're just so sad. They want to play and they're desperate to play but they know they can't because of the discomfort. So they report a really high number that's got nothing to do with the actual pain volume. Hmm. I like that. And you mentioned a few sports there and you have earlier on as well. You said kind of bowling, tennis, gymnastics, though I guess, you know, because of the movement, that kind of backwards bending and twisting that people do puts a bit more stress through that joint in the, all those joints in the lower back. Are there any other sports which you see frequently that 
do predispose to this? And, and are there any kind of gender predisposition, uh, predispositions as well? So um, I think there's two sort of um, split the body into two halves um, at the waist down and the waist up. So in the lower part of the body, we tend to see a lot of little soccer players, uh, generally aged between, I would say, 10 and 15 in the soccer players, 10 and 16 in the um, uh, sort of academies, uh, football league academy type settings. We may get these well up into 17s to 19s. And I tend to find it's when they jump up an age group or they play up a squad. There's a little bit more pressure on them to perhaps play catch up or they're trying to impress. There's all sorts of things that are associated with it. So we're seeing lots and lots of these in the football academy setting. And they generally start with that single sided back pain. What we don't know yet is it more prevalent on the kicking leg or the leg that they stand on and turn and twist on more so. So we haven't got that information. That's something I'm trying to get at the moment. That's a project we're working on. Um, rugby tends to be a really common one in the scrum. Um, because they're being pushed down into that arch position. Um, and then sort of um, we can see it a lot in the dance population as well. Um, and then start to go into the upper body. We also see it in swimming because they go into the butterfly. Even though they're not weight-bearing, they still go into those extremes of position. Um, we can see this in the gym uh, population where they're doing really not great techniques of overhead squats or deadlifts. And then we go into that whole throwing cricket tennis population in the upper body. So, so a myriad of sports, which probably most children and kids will have had some experience with. You know, most kids will have probably done some sport to that level, but it's the time, it's the going up a, up a, up a gear or up an academy level that increased in time that we haven't had, the bone hasn't had the catch up time available to it yet. So if you imagine that either they're new to the sport um, a big big one with this is, uh, and I, I feel like this time of year, because it's the cricket season in the UK, but also the tennis season for those that don't play all year round, uh, and athletics, they suddenly start throwing in long jump, high jump and javelin at this point. So what tends to happen is, certainly in the UK, um, and it will be at different times of year, but same scenario, is we get the overlap of seasons. So uh, the one I, uh, the young lad I spoke to over the weekend, um, rugby season finished on mid-May. The next day, he went straight into cricket, but he'd not had any winter training because he plays that much rugby. So we've got that netball, uh, hockey, uh, football, and uh, rugby all overlapping with the start of the summer sports. So generally, we get this four-week overlap. Now, if the child's done Let's say for, we take cricket or tennis or athletics, but they've been training all winter. They've been gradually building up to the point where they are starting that new season with lots in the tank. The bone's used to it. They've, they've adapted to it. They won't get a bone stress injury. It's the sudden change that gets that bone stress. So what we're really saying is you can control whether you get this injury or you don't. As long as we've got healthy bones around Lots of good eating, lots of good vitamin D. Um, we're sleeping well. All of the things that we can control. But what we need to do is build up in the period up to the 12 weeks up to the start of a new season like cricket or tennis. They need to build up slowly 
So each week the bone goes, hmm, if I'm going to do that again, I'd better toughen myself up. But I won't suddenly go mad. What happens is the third week into the new term in the summer for us is they suddenly have, have got this school games, they've got club games, they've got county games. And before they know it, they've tripled the volume that they trained for in the winter. And this is what tends to cause those injuries. And this is what parents should look so at. We should with, be looking back for spikes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what yeah, parents should be looking at those spikes, though that timetable when they're th- suddenly, as I said, playing three different league cricket matches, it's suddenly a it's a bit of a change, really, isn't it? So it's just yeah. a shock system. So um they just can plan that a little bit better, maybe first week of the season, just bring in the school training, second week of the season, bring in the club stuff, third week, bring in everything representative where possible. Or if They've got all those games. Don't let them bowl in the nets. Because most of these kids, you know, when we let children just go and play, whether it's footy, cricket, whatever it is, kids want to just do it. Uh, and what we just know is that it's not that they are doing too much. They're doing too much too soon. So we don't mind kids doing oodles and oodles of activities, providing they've done the training for it. Love that. So how are these picked up um, in terms of imaging wise? So if people, if a, yeah, a child has this injury, are they likely to then be sent off for an MRI scan or an X-ray or do we go off their symptoms? And then, yeah, how, how do we, how do we diagnose them really? So um, I probably see between five of, I would say five new ones of these a week. So, and I would say I manage all five probably a little bit differently. They'll present with these symptoms. If they've got symptoms on both sides, they absolutely should have an MRI scan because we know that this has the potential for being um, a slightly bigger injury that's going to take longer to heal. And what we really need to know is, has there been a little bit of a slip or, you know, what's the extent of that injury? So I then ask for a specific type of MRI scan um, and most uh, centres will know what that, what we call stress fracture protocol would look like. So they should know which imaging um, uh, sequences they need to do. An x-ray doesn't have any value whatsoever. The only thing it would pick up is a slip. And as we've said, the slips are really, really rare. So we're, we're basically not going to see any value from getting an x-ray. The biggest problem we've got is that an MRI scan isn't indicated on the NHS for low back pain. Um, because this is a specific population group, it's basically a sports injury. It's an athlete group. They're not serious. They're not sinister. They don't present with any sinister symptoms. So consequently, they don't quantify for an NHS MRI scan. So what we then end up with is if you've got an experienced clinician, they've had some training in what this injury is then they should be able to manage it, providing really it's a single-sided one, um, without having to get in any imaging done. So uh, the, the injury that I think it's very similar to is what we call shin splints or a bone stress injury in your shin. And um, We don't get scans on those unless they don't respond to treatment. We just power them down a bit, get them to go back to a level where there isn't any pain when they're doing their activity and get them stronger and during that time, we start to gradually introduce the activities again and see how they tolerate it. The management here is no different. So providing the clinicians used to dealing with children, because this is a childhood injury, 
are used to diagnosing these types of things and they understand the, the graduated return to sport that's needed, then they don't need scanning. They need scanning if after a couple of weeks of you saying, right, no, no playing sport, no doing PE, um, power down on everything you do. And we do let them cycle on a static bike just to keep them fit. But that's the only thing I let them do. They can walk and they can cycle. So let's say we, we give, give them a two week period. Um, and they're just doing that. We take them out of all their sporting activity and still the, the symptoms are there. I'd be asking that patient if there's any way that they could afford to get an MRI scan. And they can be done usually for about 250, 300 pounds um, when clinicians refer them. Um, and that's just because I'd expect it to settle down. If I'm not still banging away and bruising it, I'd be expecting it to settle down. So I don't think it's necessarily anything serious, but it's now not behaving as I would expect. So I'd want to check that my diagnosis is right. With regard to if, yeah, if they, if they are settling down, and they basically everything's going well, then you say, well, let's move them on to the next stage. Let's add a few more activities um, and see how they tolerate it. And generally, we just keep every two weeks I see them and we'll give them some more strength exercises. And really what you've got to do is sell this to the kid that they never get this opportunity to look at how they could be stronger, to look at their technique and wonder if that was contributing to it. So I absolutely Hopefully, at the end of every session when I've seen a kid and said, look, you know, these are inconvenient. I do need to power you down for X number of weeks based on the symptoms you've got. But the good news is we never get these chances to make you stronger. We don't want athletes to get into that really good finished article until they're in the late teens. And these occur generally in 13, 14 year olds. So we've got years ahead of us. What we really need is an athlete that can withstand the demands of adult sport as they go along. So we sort of just try and help them see what they can control. And I'll get them all focused on whether they're getting enough sleep. Are they on vitamin D? Are they eating enough for what they do? Because all of these things will help the injury to heal, but also stop it coming back. I love that selling point for the child of, you know, we only get this opportunity to uh, to make you stronger once. So I think that's a really good way of putting it. It's, it's not all bad news it's giving them a positive to take out of that situation of actually let's make you stronger in other areas or whatever at the moment which you're not going to do outside of this in any other season and just making them see that you know there's tons of there's always going to be if you're in soccer marcus rashford had one he doesn't seem to be doing too badly now jimmy anderson's had at least three of these he's our most long-standing cricketer we've ever had you know we can always find a role model within their sport, find them a hero within their sport that you know got back from this injury. And that's the same with all kids' injuries. As you know, if you've got a little one that's struggling because they're not growing as quickly, then tell them that Harry Kane doesn't seem to have come into any harm. It's always just finding that, you know, loads of people have gone through this and you're no different. You know, kids do get back to sport. What I need to show you is an older kid in your club because what they don't want to do is be left going, oh, God, the last kid that had this that I knew ended up out for nine months. Okay, well, they did, but that's rare. You know, we need to help them not go onto Google, not go and look at worst case scenarios and the odd kid that their mother's friend's granny knew that the one child that's ever been that had a longer injury 
We don't want them to see that as a role model. We need to find them good, credible people that they go, oh, my, they've had that. Well, I can get back from it too. Fantastic. I guess the last question I had then was around the the management of these. So, you know, as a physio, you mentioned your kind of the, the strengthening aspect of it. Are there any things which have to be included besides um, kind of dialing down from sport? And, and is there anything which should never be done in terms of uh, treatment or manotherapy or exercises? Um, let's, let's think about sort of those, let's do it in phases so that they can see a journey back to health. So in those first couple of weeks, um, the priorities are going to be, um, around those things that we just talked about. So lots of education. Um, so I'll very much look at, we've got to find the why, where was that spike in activity? So I always look at things in terms of, you either get it because you did too much or your capacity's down. So a lot of the storyline behind it is, tell me what changed. So if we're going to ever stop this from coming back, so as soon as I send them back to sport, doing it exactly as they did before, we're just going to break down again. So the first phase is really knuckling down into why did it occur, education around those training errors and what happened and what went wrong and how can we make sure that doesn't happen again. So that's the probably the biggest part of it. And um, because some of them are really, really strong, um, they just didn't know the rules. So that's the first part. And during that two-week powering down period, I'll always set them like bits of homework. Tell me who does this particular skill that you want to be better at or the technique that you're using. Go and find somebody who does it really well. Let's study what they do that you don't. So lots of things around just keeping them busy for that two-week period. They'll start off with, I think a lot of these kids have, say, for example, in the summer, they go from being probably breathing through their nose to suddenly getting maybe hay fever and suddenly they're <laughs> lifting up into that mouth breathing pattern. And so they're going into a lot more arching in their back. So we work on breathing. We work on their tummy muscles. We try to get their back muscles stronger, their bum muscles stronger, calf muscles stronger, so that when they hit the ground, say when they're running or they're kicking, they're literally on the ground for as short a period as possible. So we're looking at trying to make them really, really strong so that they can power through all their sports that they do. So we start them off usually lying on their back, doing tummy exercises, breathing exercises, bridges, and then they move to phase two if they're pain-free on certain criteria that we set them. And during that phase, we can start to bring in some swimming, um, we gradually start to get them so that they're beginning to do some running. They'll do all sorts of lunges and squats, but never with weights in that early phase. Over time, probably about the six-week mark, we can start getting them back into light activity. And at that point, we're going to introduce lots and lots of hopping and jumping, make them really like human kangaroos so that they don't squash down through their lower backs. And then at that point, we may look at their technique. Is there anything that they're doing in the way that they do it um, so that we can maybe have a look with their coaches? There's lots of things that occur in maybe a tennis action or a jumping action that may predispose them to this injury. So we look at that with the coaches and try and help them start to rebuild their technique before they return to sport. So it's very much just adding back in layer by layer, checking their pain free, getting them stronger and reinforcing that education. Brilliant. Angela, that was amazing. I love interviewing you because you 
have such a good way of explaining this. And this, you know, clearly you've said this a hundred thousand times to patients and to parents. So the way you explain it is so good to hear. And I think it gives a really good level of what should be confidence in what's on the surface can sound like a devastating injury. But actually, when you dial it back to the specifics and understand what happened, understand that uh, how common these are, it should fill you with confidence that actually I can get back to doing this. And actually I might come out of a six, eight, 12 week window and be stronger than I was beforehand and better prepared and be a better footballer, bowler, gymnast, whatever it might be. And so I think that should give parents and if any children are listening, some confidence and some positivity to come out of what could be a very negative situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess my, my take home message is, any child who's involved in sporty activities that do involve arching should report low back pain and that no child should be playing those types of sports with low back pain and therefore they need to have that period of two weeks to see if it'll all calm down and then go back gradually or they need to see a clinician who understands these injuries and and the key part here is not all um Health professionals are trained in kids. They may not know that this injury exists. It doesn't occur in undergraduate training. And therefore, you know, try and seek out somebody. If ever there's a parent struggling, um, then I'm available for, you know, a chat to try and find them an appropriate clinician in their area. Um, what we have set up most recently is this uh, site called Kids Back to Sport with the number two, uh, kidsbacktosport.com. And what we're doing is building up a catalogue of clinicians around the country who have in the UK and we are now got a clinician in Ireland. We're building this up across Europe and hopefully beyond. And what that will do is it's going to be that go-to site for parents where they can go have a look for a download, a blog, some information about what's happening with their child that are credible resources, non-scary. There is a download on these um, bone stress injuries in the lower back that that clinicians can go to, but they can also find um, a practitioner in their area that will be able to help. There's only a few on there at the moment, but we're inviting clinicians all the time to upskill and make sure they know how to deal with children with these sorts of injuries. So uh, just in the process of writing a book for parents, um, that'll be out soon, um, which will help them to develop their child in a safe way. Um, And it's kind of like my 30 odd years in the last nearly 30 odd years of being a parent with two elite athletes and what information can I share with them? So hopefully lots of things coming, but all the information for parents that we've got will be coming out on this kidsbacktosport.com website. So I hope that'll be helpful. I'm sure it will be. And you mentioned that not all clinicians, uh, you know, are fully aware of how to manage kids. You have a lot of resources for clinicians as well. So I'd love to you to, uh, to mention your, your online academy training, whatever phrase you want to use, um, for clinicians. Can you remind us of the, of the website? Yep, absolutely. So um, my um, website is uh, a very easy one, AngelaJacksonPhysio.com. Um, but you can also press on the link at the kidsbacktosport.com website, and that will take all clinicians um, we encourage chiros, osteos, sports therapists, physios, um, anybody with a degree level of, of knowledge and who've got other squ- skills and qualifications that would be comparable to do a, a training course. It can either be done in person, there's dates coming up all over the country, or they can do it online, whichever's better for them. And at the end of which, there's a little test and they can then be registered onto the kidsbacktosport.com website 
uh, if that's what they want to do. So yeah, follow me on Angie J Physio, uh, where I put loads of little infographics out there um, for clinicians to hopefully uh, upskill them as well. Brilliant. Angie, thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning to talk to us. It's been insightful, for, as always it is, talking to you. So thank you so very much. And hopefully, I'd, you know, I'd talk to you all day if I could. So <laughs> we'll love to get you back at some point to talk about something else. Okay, thanks, Ben. Take care, everybody. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.